Hey, everybody, it's Pete. I can't believe I have an opportunity to talk about Seinfeld twice this season. First, we have the Worlds Collide episode, and today, it's a show about nothing. You remember the thing, right? George and Jerry are talking about salsa and seltzer and this TV show pitch that they have to do to NBC, and they decide that it's a TV show that is going to be void of any story at all, but instead is a show about nothing. It's a clip in the show notes if you want to see it. It's an homage to the old who's on first classics of vaudeville, so it's a show about nothing. I think you may have something there. I'm not going to try to explain Vipassana here, because our guest does that for us far better. What you need to know is that we spend the next hour and a half or so embracing a meditation practice which calls for nothing as an action. It is a practice which, when illuminated by an expert teacher, is at once a mountain to climb, an ocean to swim, and a soft pillow to rest our heads. Suman Chaudhary is our healer, educator, and guide today. He is the owner of Karuna Center for Natural Healthcare in Nashville. He was formerly trained as a chiropractor and naturopath, and has done extensive training in energy medicine, including Reiki and hands-on healing. To us today, he is a meditation teacher, having spent decades immersed in the study and practice of meditation for healing and spiritual cultivation. Frankly, he's also incredibly chill. As with all these interviews, we performed this one over Zoom, and I'm not kidding, the moment he appeared on screen, we were moved to relax. He is contagious that way. If the experience of Vipassana is new to you as it was to me, I encourage you to relax into it. This might not be the best episode to listen to while operating heavy machinery, for example, or performing some kind of surgery. Instead, consider sitting in a comfy chair with a cup of tea. If you have a child, instruct them to fan you gently with an ornamental rhubarb leaf. Close your eyes, especially for the meditation exercise to come toward the end of the show today. And join us for the most engaged experience of nothing you've ever had. Our deep thanks to Suman for his time to sit down with Dodge and teach us today. And thanks to you, as always, for your commitment to the work. And now, Dodge Ray with Suman Chowdhury. Welcome, Suman. So glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So we're going to talk about Vipassana, which... Uh, I think for some folks out there will be, if they're familiar with it already, an obvious inclusion for a show like The Change Paradox. And for others who are less familiar with it will sound utterly obscure. Um, but let's see if we can catch people up. And I, I think it will get quite plainly apparent why this is an important part of this, the subtleties of change. Tell us a little bit um, if we could start with uh, just reminding us quickly who the Buddha was historically and kind of what, what was, what would, 
Why is he still known 2,700 years later? Oh, of course. Well, you know, the Buddha to me is very near and dear to my heart. His teachings I resonate strongly with. And what's unique about the Buddha is that most meditation techniques we have today, at some point or another, were influenced or stemmed back to his teachings. And he predates almost all the so-called ancient teachers that we have from most other traditions. And they borrowed extensively from the Buddha. One simple example is in Greece, around that time period, Stoicism by Pythagoras was gaining traction. And Stoicism is more or less a Western form of Buddhism and some of the practices of it. There was a lot of um, cross-pollination between Greece and India at the time. And um, some say the Stoicism that Pythagoras used in his teachings, which is very similar to what the Buddha was teaching, was borrowed extensively from India and incorporated into Pythagoras' teaching. So that's one example. But the Buddha, the reason he's so unique in my mind is he took what was happening in India at that time, which, you know, we're talking for most historical accounts, 500, 600 years before the birth of Christ. So around 500 BC, generally speaking. Now, there are some, there's some interesting research out there that actually predates him to far before that, which is a whole different topic. But the Buddha was taking the teachings of, at that time, the yogic philosophy of India and the meditation techniques, which he had mastered, and he applied a unique twist and way to cultivate it to attain certain levels of so-called enlightenment or liberation that he extensively talked about that were not fully available to most people at that time. And so he literally brought that teaching to the masses. And when I say masses, you know, it's when you look back at some of the stories that have come from the people who were with him at the time and afterwards, and they would talk about him literally going from city to village to town and teaching masses of people how to meditate. Hundreds, thousands of people how to meditate and meditating with them and guiding them for certain periods of time until they were reaching very specific stages of enlightenment, of liberation. And this was happening all over northern India at the time. And so it's very rare to find some, someone like the Buddha, a teacher with that track record, anywhere. And so that tells me what he was teaching was something that the masses, the normal people could get their minds around and do without, you know, extensive knowledge of philosophy, mystical approaches, or even being religious or anything like that. They didn't have to be long-term students of his. He was teaching them to sit and do something pretty simple and straightforward. And if they... Yeah, yeah. really simple. Really simple. And that is Vipassana, yes? What he was teaching was a meditation that had the backbone of what's called Vipassana. So the question is, well, what is Vipassana? You know, we come across that a lot these days. The answer is not so simple. Hmm. 
Vipassana is technically a state of mind that is needed for enlightenment, but it's also a technique and it's also a um, tradition specifically in Southeast Asia that has promoted our modern day idea of Vipassana. So when one says Vipassana, you have to be clear what they're talking about because the, the term Vipassana permeates all of Buddhism from Zen Buddhism to Tibetan Buddhism to Theravada. It, it's there in every form of Buddhism because it was one of his essential teachings. But as a technique, it's not always clear cut in all the other traditions. But I guess for our purposes today, it is learnable. This is something, I mean, somebody can decide to go and study and they will be, they'll be working with a form of, of really what, what the Buddha was teaching. Well, exactly. Right. You know, I personally was exposed to the Southeast Asian Vipassana tradition, and they're the ones who have really made it famous in our modern time. And what it is, they have taken the Buddha's essential teachings on Vipassana and made it a technique. Uh. And then the technique itself is based on an older technique that the Buddha taught. And so Vipassana literally means having clear sight. In other words, seeing reality clearly. And his teaching was that that's one of the two necessary components for essentially awakening, enlightenment. You have to see reality clearly, which includes the reality inside yourself and around you. And so the technique that's been taught now these days uses that as a basis. And the technique itself is very simple. And people have come across it in many other forms and traditions, but it's essentially a body scanning technique mm -hmm. focused on sensations. And so the basic principle is sensations are the key. And that was his big name to fame. Sensations are the key. And so that becomes the meditation itself. And that's what Vipassana really is as a meditation technique. Let's dive into that idea that sensations are the key. And of course, you know, music to my ears to a somatic psychologist, right? That this makes so much sense to me. But let me see if I can say what I think I understand that to mean. If I follow right, the Buddha was saying that for all of the thoughts and feelings moving through our minds at any given time, these are not the problem. <laughs> and these are not the thing we're primarily reacting to. It's that all of them have with them sensations we tend to be less aware of and that we get reactive to those sensations. Am I getting this right? Exactly. And that if we were to rewind for a minute and just say, boil down, one of the really beautiful gems of his teaching is to say that suffering ends up being an experience of resistance. I've heard it said in, that the Buddhists would say, you can almost make this into a formula, that suffering equals pain times resistance. Zero resistance, zero suffering. There's still pain, but you, you don't suffer. And that a lot of what we're resisting all the time is 
is either aversion to something we don't want or a craving for something we think we do want. And that all of this leaves us in this place where we're constantly believing this moment is only a vehicle to some better moment where we either get what we want or we get away from what we don't want. Is this a fair summary of a big chunk of the Buddhist teaching? That's a great summary. Okay. So now we can dive back into the sensation idea. And that, so our, our problem ends up being our reactivity. Yes? Yes. Our reactivity is the part of us that's saying, I can't stand to have this experience as it is. Either I can't stand my aversion, I have to get away from what I don't want, or I can't stand my longing for what I do want. I can't just stay right here right now, I have to go get it, or I can't be happy. Correct. And what I think I hear about the sensations is, the problem is, that's the part we're reacting to. Okay, go from there. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great summary. And, you know, so sensations are created by the nervous system all the time, all day long, since the time of our birth to our death. Sensations are happening. And it's really the externals and internal stimuli that triggers the brain and the nervous system to create a specific sensation. Now, to expand this idea a little bit, and people who are into the concept of energy and chi will resonate with this, because it just helps to explain what sensations really are and then what to do with them. The movement of chi, the movement of energy in the body, creates sensations. And when I say energy, I'm talking about subtle energy. Of course, the energy that acupuncture deals with, Reiki deals with, it's that subtle energy, that life force that runs through channels in the body as the model is based on meridians, nadis. And so the movement of that energy, which is directly linked to our mind, when the mind moves, energy moves, is the basic principle, right? So when we have a thought, that instantly moves an aspect of our chi in some way or another in our body. So that movement itself literally generates a sensation that our nervous system tangibly picks up and registers in our consciousness. Or not, but it's going on at some level of our mind. Okay? Mm-hmm. So once a sensation gets registered, And it's important to remember, though, what I just talked about, it is connected to the movement of chi, which is connected to the movement of mind, because that comes back around to understand how this really works and what the value of it is. So once we have the sensation that's been created and we become aware of it, at some level, we may not be fully aware of it, but the reactive mind then kicks in and instantly labels it as something it likes or something it doesn't like, which is then based on if it creates a pleasurable sensation or discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so that comes down to the two famous words, craving and aversion, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So once our reactive mind generates the label of pleasant or unpleasant, then the other part of our mind instantly reacts to that, oftentimes unknown to us, or we're thinking it's something else. But the reactive mind then takes over 
and instantly, involuntarily, oftentimes, based on habitual patterns and just plain habits, it will make you do something that follows along with what you've done before. So if there's a craving pattern that you've done before, instantly you find yourself doing that again to recreate that sensation because it felt good. Mm -hmm. And so we then start doing that looping over and over and over, creating that behavior pattern, thought pattern, whatever it is, to recreate that sensation of pleasure again and again and again because we just can't get enough of it Mm -hmm. right because that craving eventually creates it can create addiction or it creates this attachment this desire to keep feeling what feels good which is only natural but then on the reverse end we have the aversion when something feels bad well we don't want to feel it obviously so the Reactive mind kicks in and then makes us do something or think something or feel something else so that we don't have to feel the original sensation of discomfort. Mm. And then we can get very good at doing that, obviously, and find very creative ways of not feeling the one thing we need to feel possibly to heal or move through something. And so that gets buried deep down inside. Eventually, we become then these reactive beings that are just reacting to craving and aversion over and over and over. And eventually, in some cases, unfortunately, which can lead to addictions or phobias, two extreme examples. But even without addictions or phobias, it really leads to this cycle of suffering. Like, because we, we, we're sort of programmed by our reactivity to then be enslaved by donuts or Netflix or uh, avoiding discomforts we're not even aware we're having in our body. Exactly. You know, the, the suffering really comes from the inability to then fully feel that original sensation that spawned it all because now it's buried so deeply inside or hidden away or covered up. And because we're not able to feel that original sensation, There are two levels of suffering here. One is the apparent level of suffering. We just can't get enough of what we're needing. Right. And so we keep chasing that. It reminds me of, if I could jump in real quickly on just that first one, the wonderful phrase, we can't get enough of what we don't need. Right. Or it's hard to get enough of what almost works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's the apparent suffering of being compelled to to push for more and more and more or to run more and more from things we think we can't stand. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that's one apparent level of suffering. But then the real deeper level of suffering is that pain that is there, that original pain, oftentimes from a trauma, oftentimes from some conditional stressful pattern early in life. But that original pain that's there that now we can't really feel, but the pain stays and festers. And this is where tying in the idea of energy and chi, prana, subtle energy, and how it affects our health and our mind comes into play. Because that pain, in other words, is a blockage of energy. It's a 
festering wound inside of us, inside of our body, inside of our mind, that is continuing to grow, fester, and create toxicity, if you will. It's leaking toxins in a way. And because we're never really dealing with it, it continues to then create this deep level of anxiety, tension, toxicity, oftentimes manifesting physically in different symptom patterns, different diseases or diseases, you know, all kinds of, you know, you name it. But that original seed of pain really is the issue. And from the Buddhist or the Eastern perspective, there's a name for that, and that's called samskara. The samskaras that we carry, which literally means the the imprints, the seeds, the imprints that have been created and increased over time because of our habitual patterns that are the original seeds of our issues. Mm. So most of us are stuck between the two poles of either expressing this pain or suppressing it. Right. Most of the time, I think we suppress it, if, if I'm right, I'm just thinking about this, at least as a psychologist, I would say most of the time we're suppressing the pain by either, you know, through avoidance, aversion, or craving by going towards something that, that covers up that, that feeling with something we like better for a little while. And it almost works, so we keep doing it again and again. But Vipassana is suggesting there's a third way, a third place between the poles of expression and suppression, and that's mere observation. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where the idea of neutrality comes in, or the word equity, which is often in this world. And that's the third option, like you just mentioned. It's the middle ground, the, the place in the middle of being neutral and being able to observe and watch what's happening. And what's happening is noticing your body and mind reacting, creating sensations, creating thoughts, creating feelings, and what those feelings really feel like. How comfortable are they? How uncomfortable are they? And how are you responding to that? Can you observe your response to your sensations and thoughts is really the first step. So the first step, neutrality or mere observation, not taking action on the sensations that our thoughts and feelings and circumstances are, are giving rise to in the body becomes an odd goal, right? For, from the Western point of view, right, the idea is to get really good at reacting to that. It's, it's, to get, it's to go get what you want and get better and better at getting what you want and better and better at making those bad things go away. Why is, what's the problem with that? You never get to the root. Ah. The original problem, the original pain, the original trauma. And so, you know, any successful healing in any realm, whether it's psychology or alternative medicine, acupuncture, finding the right remedy, finding the right herb, taking a vacation or, an, or a good healthy talk or a sunrise, anything that typically elicits a change in transformation. This model basically says that it's because somehow, some way, you have found a way to access some level of that seed, mm. of that samskara. 
and you have been able to be with it. Literally be with it without any aversion or craving, if you will. Simply to hold it for what it is and allow yourself to be present with whatever level of feeling you're aware of. But now this is getting even more interesting. Since you're saying, okay, you're not saying no pleasure is acceptable, that you should just sit in your suffering as much as possible. You're saying that many things are pleasurable and healing, but always because at some level they let us go toward the sensation we didn't want to have. So maybe it's a conversation with a good friend, or it's enjoying a sunset, or it's something about music that made you feel wonderful, who knows? Something about that is letting you be in your body at a different level in some way that releases some part of that samskara. Am I getting this? Yeah. You know, another way to think of it is it's a lot about resonance. So when you're feeling good from whatever reason, and ideally it's a natural, healthy reason, but if you're feeling good about something, that creates a state of mind that typically is very healthy. You usually feel calm. You feel relaxed, you feel open, sensitive, receptive, you know, all those qualities we really strive for. And so what happens is when you're in that state of mind, especially due to the internal mental and physical relaxation, the energy in your body starts to shift. The energy, again, the chi, the prana, as it's moving through your body, starts to shift and move in ways that it hasn't been doing. And so that means whatever resistance that was there in the first place that was holding the imprint, the original seed of the issue starts to move, starts to change, starts to release a little bit, right? And that's really what healing is, allowing that to happen. Hmm. Now, the problem occurs when the healing starts to happen, we don't usually recognize it. So oftentimes, there's a saying with real healing, oftentimes it may feel worse than it, you know, before it feels better or the typical healing crisis. Something may be uncomfortable initially that you weren't expecting as it's starting to heal and you don't recognize it. And now because you haven't trained your mind in, for example, Vipassana or, you know, you know, neutrally observing how you're feeling because you haven't trained yourself that way, what happens is you instantly then react to that new discomfort, which is really an aspect of healing that's occurring. Some change internally that's coming up that needs to happen. But then you react to that, again, with aversion. So then what happens is you stop the process. And so you, then you stay stuck or really limit the full potential of what was really trying to happen in terms of healing. And therefore, you know, that brings us back to the value of a practice like Vipassana which is a practice of learning how to observe your sensations 
primarily in the beginning and being relaxed about it, being neutral about it, being open to it and not having to do anything, which like you said, is counter to how we want to be. Typically, we want to do something. And especially if something is, un- is uncomfortable, we want to take it away. But what if you don't? What happens? How far do you get? What changes? That's what something like Vipassana allows you to see. And some of the change can be pretty remarkable. <laughs> There's an old book titled, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. And uh, this helps illuminate kind of well, the first part of it, wh- why that would be difficult, why that's harder than just doing something. But what are the, some of the benefits? Like, wh- why would somebody do this? I mean, let's say for somebody out there who doesn't understand prana or chi or hasn't the faintest idea that a samskara really even exists, because that just sounds like a philosophical idea. Like, what evidence is there that this helps? Great question. You know, and this is really what is beautiful about essential Buddhism, as it was taught by the Buddha, because he stripped away, you know, everything mystical about it to the public and just made it bare bones, simple. Here's what you got to do. And here's what happens. And so, you know, as we all know, at this point, stress is usually behind most of our issues, whether it's a physical symptom, an actual event we're dealing with, a mental, emotional event. The way we handle stress typically dictates how healthy you are mentally or physically or emotionally and just your quality of life. So Vipassana literally increases your skill and ability to handle stress. And you can't get any more practical than that, in my opinion, right? Because that's everyone's primary issue, stress. And so, and how we handle stress, and that's the key here. Stress essentially, like we just talked about, creates sensations in the body. Again, back to the original issue here. Stress is always creating a sensation. And the reason we call it stress is because it's typically creating something uncomfortable Mm. that we don't want to feel. So because we are bombarded with stressful events, stressful situations all day long, we're bombarded with these very uncomfortable sensations all day long. And typically most what everyone does, they're trying to cope with it. They're trying to deal with it or they're trying to mask their stress or distract themselves or stay busy, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so suppress it, vent it. Yeah, exactly. And we get pretty good at doing that, right? So how do we counter the effects of the stress that is happening to everyone? Stress eventually creates tension in the body. And that's kind of the first way we notice the effects of stress in our body. Your muscles are tight. You have a headache, right? You can't digest your foods properly. You know, you your back hurts. All those types of things are typical signs of stress building up. Low levels of anxiety, right? Being hypercritical or hypersensitive, 
All those are examples of tension building up in the body. So when you practice Vipassana and you're able to slowly but surely increase your ability to observe your own sensations that are happening in real time if you're sitting there, just allowing whatever arises, allowing them to arise. And then the practice is you, because you're observing them, you allow them to pass away. They arise, they pass away. Your sensations come up, they peak, then they fall away. They cycle, they cycle continuously. And you start to notice that. That's one aspect of reality that starts to give you what's called wisdom yourself. And so you start to notice how you start cycling through stress and tension and how it makes you feel, whether it's anger or a pain in your back. Now, of course, when you begin this practice, certain tensions may not cycle through. The pain in your back may not go away. It may actually get worse while you're sitting there (laughs) and you're practicing day after day. But the point is, eventually, with time and enough practice, every tension will start to soften and you will become very good at relaxing to the point where even chronic tensions and patterns start to shift, start to change. Mm. And there's a lot going on behind the scenes, especially with energy and chi and prana with that. But this ability to stay neutral with your sensations then translates into real time. Because what starts happening then is with a little bit of practice, the typical trigger, say, that you have that would make you angry If someone said something, say, about your self-worth that triggers something that was instilled in you from the age of five from your parents, well, you know what that trigger is. You know when you hear it, especially if it comes from someone close to you, like your partner, and you know how you respond. You know the anger. So what starts to happen is with when one starts practicing something like this, The next time they get triggered, what they're going to start to notice is all of a sudden there's going to be a difference in how they respond. And it could be very slight at first. It could be simply the anger is not as acute. Or you're able to observe yourself suddenly get angry with a little more neutrality than you had before. Or your response time to the anger takes longer to manifest or your ability to clear the anger out increases just a little bit more so you start to notice these subtle changes in yourself and how you're responding to the effects of stress on your body and mind right and that gives you confidence that hey there's something to this here this is literally changing how we are reacting to stress. And the thing is, you know, like the Buddha would say, anybody can learn this as long as you're alive. And with a a little bit of practice, you can get to a stage where stress has a dramatically different effect on you. Now, stress will still be there. You're still going to feel the effects of it. But how you feel it and how you respond to it 
dramatically changes. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a good example of a certain patient of mine. He has been coming to see me for years. And when he first came in, he had a issue with his father who had been passed away for some time where he couldn't talk about his father and how he was with his father without just getting upset. Things would come up. Any memory of his father would just bring up irritation and just anger. So knowing that, you know, we started getting into some meditation, some Vipassana. And within a matter of, I would say, six months, he comes back to me and says, you know what? I don't know if this is meditation or not. And it's, you know, hilarious when people always say that. But when I think about my father now, I feel completely different. And he was astounded. And he didn't want to believe it. But he couldn't deny his obvious reaction to any mention of his father or even thinking of his father. And so this is the beauty of it. Something like meditating in Vipassana slowly transforms you inside and you don't even realize it. Yeah. And all you have to do is get still and observe. Yes. Now that's a huge change that happened there. And I think I happen to know this gentleman and that was unquestionably related to meditation. But one thing that fascinates me is that the research is showing that in only eight weeks of mindfulness meditation, Vipassana, right? In only eight weeks, there is a measurable difference in brain scans. Oh, definitely. Like your brain changes shape in in two months of doing this. This is not like 10 years later, trust me, you're really going to feel it. It's no, two months in your brain will be different in shape. And the thing that changes shape, apparently, is the amygdala starts to shrink. Right. And the amygdala, for those who don't know, is like the smoke alarm of the brain. It's asking a thousand times a second, literally, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe? Right? And any time it gets some idea that you're not, bam, like that, it kicks into gear and reactivity begins. It, if there is a part of the brain that is designed for reactivity, it's the amygdala. And the amygdala in only eight weeks starts to shrink. And over more time, it shrinks more and more and more and more. Which doesn't make you less safe. It just makes you uh, less reactive to all of the things you think are unsafe. And not just in terms of danger, just the, the unsafety of, I really need a fourth donut today, and I'm going to have to have it, right? If the amygdala kicks in, you're going to go have it. Or... My kid's making me crazy. I'm going to have to start yelling. Yep, here I go. I'm yelling, right? Amygdala all over that. Fight, flight, freeze. Loves it. It's what it's designed for. It's kept a species, you know, in existence a nice long time, but it's terrible for relationships and horrible for stress levels. Right. So when that starts to shrink, we start going, I'm not sure I really do need to start yelling. I wonder what's going on for me right now. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's one great example of actual physical change that happens. And there've been so many studies on meditation at this point and the effects of how it harmonizes the left and right hemispheres of the brain and just makes the brain work more as a unit, as a whole. 
right? And so that has a profound effect on how we function, how we live, how we see, obviously how we handle stress. There's one unique thing about Vipassana and one thing I'm going to also briefly talk about right after this that I think is important to mention is the idea of mindfulness because that goes hand in hand with Vipassana. And it's important to understand, especially for those people who are already meditating with some technique and have come across mindfulness, it's understanding where that fits in with their practice and how to incorporate that into what they're already doing. So, but just briefly before I mention that, you know, there's in terms of brain waves, right? There's a lot of research on the actual brain waves that are generated and affected by meditation. And so, you know, for the people who don't know, there are a number of brain waves that are based on how much activity is happening in the brain at a certain time. And so typically right now we're in beta. That's how fast our brain is moving at a certain frequency. Once you start relaxing, you get into alpha. If you start relaxing even more and get kind of more in a dreamy state, you get into theta. And then there's delta, which is essentially the deep sleep that we experience. The brain is essentially shut down. Now, there's also gamma, which is a newer area of investigation, but gamma is actually faster than beta, significantly faster than beta. And what they found is gamma is a state where delta is really reduced because the gamma is so high. And it's a state of hyper alert wakefulness. And so they found that meditators, especially long-term meditators who've been doing some mindfulness approach of, uh, of specifically observing and staying active in their meditation, because what Vipassana does, something like Vipassana, which is based on mindfulness, you are actively doing something as you're sitting there. You see, so many other meditations are based on calming the mind or focusing your concentration. And so that gives your brain one specific thing to do. And so you're essentially quieting everything down. Now with Vipassana, because of its technique, typically of how it's practiced, you're actively observing your sensations in a typical rhythmic pattern. You're scanning your body, but you're keenly aware of how the sensations feel, what's happening, what's happening you know, everywhere else, what your mind is doing, what your breath is doing. So you're engaged in a very active way, which has been found to activate gamma specifically. <laughs> and gamma is the state where typically you're in a zone. When people get into a zone of any activity, right, where you just get into that hyper-focused state where you can accomplish more than you typically would, right? You're touching into gamma at that point. And so something like Vipassana and other meditations that incorporate mindfulness, you're instilling gamma in your brain, which is really what we want in terms of a practical daily state of mind. Mm. Because then you're hyper-efficient, you're hyper-functioning, but you're relaxed and you're aware. and it creates this level of awareness that allows for stress to affect you in a completely different way. 
So I just wanted to kind of add that in with the research and some of the gamma knowledge out there. Fascinating. You were going to tie that into the idea of, of combining whatever your meditation technique might be, including, you know, the Vipassana style of, of scanning sensation with mindfulness. Tell me about that. Right. So, you know, mindfulness, typically, we have this idea now because of um, many people bringing forth mindfulness the last few decades. It's about being present, right? Being aware and present in the moment. Okay. So now that's true. It's much easier said than done. Okay. And so mindfulness typically is what Vipassana has always been based on. And so when the Buddha was teaching what he was teaching, he said there were two aspects to the mind that need to be cultivated to really liberate yourself and eventually enlightenment, if that's your goal. So one is tranquility, calmness, peace, stillness, right? And you get that in most every meditation tradition practice out there. It's you're focused on something in some way or another. And you train yourself to improve your focus, concentration, your stillness, whatever you want to call it, until the mind quiets down and the body quiets down and gets still. So he said, you need that. You need that as a foundation. Now, the other side of it, though, what you also need is wisdom, insight. And that gets translated as mindfulness now. So... But that insider wisdom is another word for Vipassana, as he described it, as other Buddhist traditions describe it. Vipassana is the clear awareness of things, right? So he said, that is mindfulness, and you need that with tranquility to properly cultivate your full potential. Because when you don't have the mindfulness, what happens is if you get very good at, for example, tranquility, becoming very calm, very still, it's easy to get lost in that because it feels really good. It's really nice. You lose touch with your pain stresses are forgotten about, the body attains this level of ease, the mind can enter deep levels of rapture eventually, or just peace, calmness. So it's a very wonderful state of mind, and it's necessary. But what the Buddha said was, okay, look, hold on. Okay, now the next step is you have to cultivate mindfulness. You have to cultivate the awareness of what's going on so that you don't get too attached to how good you feel. <laughs> right? That's the kicker. Because typical focused meditation, if you stick with it, eventually you start feeling really good. And that's a, a very advanced stage of meditation where you create this blissful, rapturous sensation in the body, which is supposed to happen. It's kind of our natural state. Now, what the Buddha said was, though, don't get attached to that, which means don't crave it. Mm. Again, how do you do that? Well, you have to cultivate 
equanimity, mindfulness along the way, which will allow you to move through that state and beyond. Wow. To even better things. So having some type of practice, separate practice, like a scanning meditation, or simply cultivating just more awareness while you're meditating with your own present technique of what's going on. How's your breath? Notice your thoughts. Notice your sensations. Okay, you're focused on a mantra or you're focused on part of your body. Great. Let's keep your mind focused. But stay aware of as much as possible inside and outside. That then cultivates mindfulness if you're not doing a scanning technique like Vipassana. You see? So then that eventually leads to a state where you're just allowing what's happening inside, right? The sensations, the thoughts, they come and go, they come and go. And because now you've been focused on something that keeps your mind focused, say on your breath or a mantra, you're stabilizing your mind, but you want to expand your awareness. And that's a whole different thing than f- harnessing concentration. Does that make sense? Let me see if I can say it back to you and you'll tell me if I've made sense of it. But I, I think I hear you saying that, and, and we've talked about this before, so I've got a little bit of context for it, that that the Buddha was not the first person to say meditation is good. <laughs> he may have been the first to make this really interesting insight that just concentrating your mind, which creates a lot of stillness and ultimately relaxation, isn't enough. You want your mind both quiet and ultimately aware. Right. Like, you don't want just to go down into the void. You want to be have access to the void and to the present, to the your current environment, your your body, your breath, what's happening in the room around you. It's not just about going away. Correct. And doing the two of them at the same time is the magic. Right. For the Buddha. Like that accelerates moving toward enlightenment. A word that you've used many times today, but for those who don't know what that means, let's call it the end of all suffering. Correct. It's it's ultimate liberation. It's ultimate. It's it's the discovery of of the true who of you, not just the what of you, the the you that is is infinitely beyond this this realm of form. Is that fair to say for enlightenment? Right. Okay. So back to this this critical insight that it's about being going all the way down within, but also being available to what is without. Correct. One way to get a bigger idea of this is when the mind and body get really still, okay, when you've been practicing meditation for some time and the body gets really quiet, it's almost like you can't really feel the body much. There's a certain stage that you know that you attain with that. And the mind gets still to the point where there are long stretches of time where you're not having many thoughts, but then even if you do, you kind of notice them come and go. Okay, so the mind and the body start to get really, really still and quiet. But you're still aware. You're still there. You're still observing all of this. So the key now is who's observing, Uh right? And what part of you is really observing? And so one way to describe that is you can call it your consciousness. Your overall consciousness 
is now aware of your mind and body very still. Okay? So now your consciousness or your pure awareness, the part of you that's just observing, that part obviously is always there, right? That's the part of you that's been there since the time you were born, right? That's been observing you grow and change and live life, right? And so you observe your body changing, your mind continuously changing and sensations coming and going. The problem occurs is because we're so caught up with our minds and body, it gets in the way of the awareness, our consciousness, our pure consciousness, which literally one way of thinking of it is like this ball of light. This, you know, this discussion, it's like this ball of light that is continuously interfered with because of all the thoughts and sensations in our body. Okay. So when the body and mind get still, all of a sudden now those are taken out of the picture. So what remains now is this ball of light, your consciousness, your pure awareness. Follow so far? Yeah. So the magic happens now. The ball of light is, for lack of a better word, just a magical state of being. Because what happens is, now that you're aware of your awareness and you're able to observe the thoughts in the body, Whatever is there that's been entangled, whatever blockages you have, all the samskaras that are sitting there deep within your mind and your subconscious and your unconscious, all the pains you carry, all the tensions, all the toxins, those are suddenly able to be bathed by your ball of light without your mind and body and sensations interfering now. Do you follow? Yeah. Literally, the light is able to be shined on them like a heating lamp the heating lamp starts to melt the block of ice whereas before all the thoughts were having all day long all the reactions we're doing all the all the sensations in the body are literally creating interference between that heat lamp and the block of ice but now once you remove those and they clear out that heat lamp starts to melt the block of ice you follow? Naturally, without you even trying. And that is how the real transformation occurs with meditation. Your consciousness literally starts to transform your body and mind and clear out all this other stuff that has been in the way before. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, it's beautiful. And it really does make sense. I I think I hear you saying, ultimately, the, the Buddhist perspective, and this I think is shared maybe with all of the other traditions, that the real you is not this person here in this world, in this body, in your thoughts, in your occupation, in your house. Like, this is not the real you. The real you, this, this, this would, um, can be described as the horizontal plane, the, the plane of form. Right. right. This is this is the these are the temporary waves of kind of illusory existence, and they feel very real. And we do have to exist here in this in this horizontal plane, but the realist self is found in the vertical, and the realist self is a form of consciousness that is shy 
as Parker Palmer would say, the soul is shy. This this soul is uh, is is very subtle, g- gentle, patient, and is is wrapped in a body which is wrapped in thoughts and ideas and cravings and aversions and all kinds of feelings about those and tons and tons of sensations about them. And until we observe all of that, we identify with all of them. Exactly. We think those are us. I am this body. I am the Dodge. But I'm not. I'm a consciousness far more ancient than just this one that's been around for 50 years or something. But I can't know that if I can't first get really still and let the body quiet and stop reacting to every damn thing it senses and wants and then get the mind really still and stop following the waves of bouncing thoughts and wishes and ideas. God, that takes a long time. And then finally realize there is still a presence even when all of that gets quiet. But back to this idea of, but we still need to combine that with mindfulness. I hear the Buddha saying, here's the thing. If you just deep dive into the quiet, you still aren't fully present. You're still missing that deep consciousness. It's blissful. It's extraordinary. You've, you are, in a sense, free of suffering, but you're not, still, you're not yet fully liberated because you're not wholly identified with the part that watches even that. Correct. And Damn. that gets back to the essential nature of Vipassana, mindfulness. And remember, the point of that was to create wisdom, insight, as he called it. Transcendental wisdom is the actual translation, which you need with tranquility. So that transcendental wisdom has three qualities, right? Which he laid out as the three ingredients you need to literally master to awaken. And so one is, of course, impermanence, you know, and these three qualities, these three ingredients are specifically the three things you start to disentangle as you're doing a mindfulness practice. That's how it all fits together. So impermanence is the first one, understanding that, hey, when an itch comes up on your nose, if you don't scratch it, it will go away. Everything that comes up in the body, whether it's an itch, a pain, eventually goes away. So whether it's a feeling, whether it's, there are different sensations, different thoughts, you start to notice that over and over, that whatever's coming up, if you don't react, if you stay neutral, it does go away. Or if nothing else, it changes to something different. And you start to really, really see that deeply as you're sitting there observing yourself. Right. And so you understand, you start to get the nature of impermanence, anicca, as he called it. And that helps you then deal with uncomfortable sensations and stress. Right. That's the first way you start to change your habits with stress. Of course, then the second ingredient is what's called being dissatisfied, the nature of suffering itself. Eventually, you will be dissatisfied. No matter how good it feels right now, it will eventually change. Again, based on impermanence, but you start to notice how it leads to eventually some form of dissatisfaction 
suffering, if you will, right? And you start to see that now in everything, in yourself, in others, in the world, how we're chasing our cravings, running away from our aversions, and you're seeing how it's played out. You you start seeing that in yourself, that if you do shift your body because your back is hurting, well, that temporarily seems to take it away. But then if you get back into it, all of a sudden the back pain comes back, right? So then you just realized, oh my gosh, oh, this is how it's really working. This is how suffering is playing out again and again, which then eventually leads you to the third major component, which is the true understanding of the self, which is what you were talking about. So you start to disentangle how you see yourself, what you think of yourself, who the self really is, right? And of course, that starts with understanding you're not the body first. And of course, sensations are based in the body and you start, as you start to notice how the sensations keep changing and transforming, this deep level of understanding starts to build in you that, hey, I'm observing the sensations in my body. How can I be my body? The key is though, this goes from a cognitive understanding, which a lot of people can get. Hey, I'm not my body. Okay, I can kind of get that mentally. But it becomes a experiential grounded understanding that you're not the body, right? That's the key here. And eventually that leads to feelings and thoughts, right? You start to get, oh, I'm not my thoughts. And for most people, that's a big quantum leap with themselves when they realize, oh, this depression I feel is not all that I'm. It's certain feelings and sensations and thoughts that keep playing inside of me. Interesting. What is that? Who am I really? Who am I independent of that? Right? So the different thoughts that come and go, you start to observe them like you're observing sensations. Which then, like I said, leads you to this profound, deep understanding that, oh my gosh, I'm not my thoughts I'm having all day long. Which eventually, you know, eventually leads to, oh, who I thought I was, maybe I'm not. Oh my, what am I then? Who am I? Right? So it starts to loosen your concepts of the self is what starts to happen. Everything starts to relax and loosen around you. So you still realize though that, okay, I've got a body still. I've got thoughts. I've got a personality and likes and dislikes and those remain, but they start to become loose around you now. They're not as sticky, right? They don't trap you as easily and lead you down certain roads you don't want to go, right? (laughs) They don't run away with me. Run away, yeah. And so eventually the goal of this is once you can disentangle your body, your feelings, your thoughts, then it comes down to what you think the self really is, right? Whether it's a soul, a level of awareness, this witness, this observer, you start to notice this aspect of yourself more and more profoundly. And, you know, these things, because like we talked about, they change your brain. They're changing your thinking, your patterns, your habits. This level of awareness of the self starts to permeate 
your daily life, even when you're not meditating, right? The, the level of equanimity of staying neutral, it starts to linger with you. It's, it stays with you longer and longer and longer to where eventually what happens is you start to see yourself not so much separate anymore. Right? Because you've already noticed that, okay, you've had thoughts and sensations and feelings coming and going, but they're part of you. Now you don't identify with them as much, right? You're able to kind of let them flow. It's like this free flowing level of your being is starting to develop. Well, you start to notice that around you too, with people, relationships, events, work. You start to be less attached to the outcome. Right? You still have your goals, desires, but you're really relaxed about it now. And even if your goal or desire doesn't end up the way you want it, you may be, dis- you may be disappointed. Well, you're able to be with that fully and let it move through you now more than before. Right? And so what happens is the disappointment leaves. It's again, being non-reactive. All of a sudden, what, you know, what are you left with? Well, what is the real situation right now? What's really happening? So you didn't get what you wanted. What do you got? And then you can clearly see what you have. And then you can deal with that, right? You can work with that. So this changes your whole understanding of yourself. All this is what the Buddha meant in deconstructing the nature of the self. Now, one last thing just to mention, and it's not really something you can talk about. That's why it's not something we need to really get into, but the point is deconstructing even what you think of the final level of the self is. So you as a separate entity that's observing something, you also deconstruct that, right? And and, so, and that gets into just a place that really is pointless unless you're there, right? And so... That is what real enlightenment is from the Buddhist perspective. You know, really understanding what the self is and how they would say what the self really isn't. You literally cut away all the aspects of the self until there's nothing. But in that nothing, you suddenly realize that's everything. That awareness, I gather, is no longer, you know, the awareness that identifies as Dodge. It is the great awareness that merges with all awareness. and. Right. And there's a sense of, of, of true unity with, with all things. Exactly. Remarkable. How does somebody go learn this, Suman? Like if, let's say somebody's hearing this and going, I, I want to move that direction. I'd like to be less reactive. I'd like to be moving toward this kind of flow state and a higher gamma state in my day-to-day life. And ultimately over years, you know, on that path toward enlightenment. Uh, what do you do? Great question. <laughs> you know, my path specifically was, I was meditating. I learned TM, transcendental meditation first, and I was doing that for some time. And some other mantra-based meditations, um, visualization meditations, all those falling into the category like we talked about, concentration-based meditations, right? Tranquility meditations. At some point... In the early 2000s, I had come across this retreat center, this 10-day retreat center 
near where I was living that was practicing a Buddhist-based meditation, Vipassana. And so I knew nothing about it and I went. And what it essentially was, everything we've talked about is basically what you're doing for 10 days. So it's a silent meditation where you're literally given instruction on how to focus on the breath until the mind and the body is quiet to a certain level. And then you start doing the Vipassana scan where you scan the sensations through your body and you do that for 10 days, right? That's all you're doing in this retreat setting with a group of people. And in my opinion, that was the most profound thing I've ever done. And I recommend every person to experience that at least once if they can get 10 days, carve it out from their schedule. The beauty of it is that you essentially practice everything we just talked about. And that's it. It's all you're doing. The amount of, the amount of work that you can do on yourself in that 10 day span is unparalleled. There's no way to achieve that except in a retreat setting. And the, the founder of the retreat was a man called S.N. Guenka. And he, was a proponent of this Vipassana scanning method, which is based on the Theravada Buddhist tradition from Southeast Asia. And he created this organization throughout the world that has these retreat centers all over the world. And just so you know, they are donation-based, right? Another amazing aspect of it. And so when I was there, I've done that like three times, this retreat. And every time... The transformations I experienced there were unbelievable. They, they pushed me to different stages and levels, if you will, that are important to understand if you're really serious. But they pushed me to certain levels that I would have never have gotten to if I was just, you know, trying to do this at home, you know, half an hour three or four times a week, it, it, the, the, the boot camp, you need to go through some type of boot camp, you know, obviously with most any activity. And so for meditation Vipassana, this would be it, right? So I recommend, you know, if anyone is interested, has the time, investigate that. Just search, you know, Goenka, G-O-E-N-K-E, or the website is Dhamma, D-H-A-M-A, D-H-A-M-M-A.org. Sign up. There's almost always a waiting list <laughs> months out in advance and experience that. Now, for people where this is not a possibility, my advice to everyone is, first of all, just start meditating some way, somehow. Read about it. Read about it online. Try it. But please understand with meditation, it's very important to have some type of guidance some personal guidance, because if you don't, the chances of getting lost and quitting are very, very high. <laughs> a feeling discouraged and not knowing what to expect because meditation and just any meditation in general, the stages one goes through have been mapped out for thousands of years. And they're well known, but unless you have a teacher who knows them, you're not going to get them and you may go in circles and you may not fully reach 
the places that you actually can, and you'll never know that you didn't, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? So, especially with Vipassana, with mindfulness, you know, anyone can incorporate that, like we talked about, into their practice. Just be aware of more than you have been, right? Or just be aware of the breath more than you have been. Or be aware of your body as a whole as you're meditating focused on a mantra or the breath. Again, I can't emphasize having guidance with that as well because you will come to a point where if you don't know how to proceed, you're usually going to go backwards or stay stuck. Does that make sense? It does. I guess I'm relating it to exercise where it's like any meditation is going to help some, sort of like any exercise. I mean, just just start walking. Uh, that's great for you. But if you want to get to any sort of elite levels of fitness, you're going to need a great coach who can help you when you when you get stuck, who can encourage parts that are working best, you know, and so forth. Uh, exactly. And, you know, to, to reach, you know, the, the profound versions of progress involve something like a boot, a boot camp to give you a massive head start and then somebody you can access to, you know, uh, to get ongoing help. Right. Exactly. Uh, again, the, you know, the beauty of meditation is anyone can start at any time in any way. You just pick something to focus on in your mind, right? And that's the beginning. Stick with it. Force yourself to sit there for at least five, 10 minutes, <laughs> eventually 15. If you can get to 20 minutes on a regular basis, and it doesn't have to be every day if you can't do this, you know, three or four times a day. If you can get to 20 minutes, good job. Now, with the mindfulness, with the, you know, with the Vipassana, hey, when you're driving, when you're washing your dishes, can you just stay aware of how you're feeling, how you're breathing? What are you thinking? Just be aware of that while you're doing things, right? You're practicing mindfulness if you're doing that, right? And that is a great start for anyone to dive into. Yeah. It's incredible how much we practice mindlessness in this culture most of the time, right? I mean, we are washing a plate and we're having a thought while having a conversation while a TV is on in another room all at the same time. Or we're drying, driving this massive automobile and we are fumbling with our Bluetooth gadget while we are the radio is playing and we are already thinking a little bit about the work we're headed toward. I mean, it's incredible how little... We are just feeling the sensation of gripping a steering wheel right? and the sound of the road and the, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how different we can feel just doing that little. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. another piece of advice is, you know, next time you feel upset, right? Or next time you actually feel stressed about something, practicing some simple mindfulness would be, okay, when you get a chance, Sit yourself or just stand there for five minutes and just acknowledge and notice what's going on inside, specifically the breath and your sensations. How are you breathing and what are you feeling right now? Where are you feeling it? What's it feel like? And simply watch it. Yes. Right? And even that's simple mindfulness. Even doing that for 10, 15, 20 minutes. Yes. Um, is it okay if we put contact information for folks to reach out to you? I know there are many, many wonderful 
teachers of seated and moving meditations in the world, but I also know you're an extraordinary one. I've known you a long time, and uh, if it's okay, it'd be neat to put those in the show notes so folks can reach out to you if they're looking for a teacher. Of course, yes. This is my passion, and you know, I want to get this out to as many people as possible. So before we wrap, I really would really like you to to retell a story you told me years ago about the first time you went for this Vipassana retreat, the silent retreat you mentioned, the 10-day one. There's a particular story you told about, about back pain you were experiencing that kind of exemplifies the entire arc of, of what's possible around, around staying with sensation and the release of samskara. Can you tell us about that? Right. Yeah, that's a great story. So during my first retreat setting, it's 10 days. And so I'm sitting there doing the technique. And then around the third or fourth day, what started to happen is I have this spot in my mid-back that I've always known is kind of a sensitive sore spot for me. It's where I hold a lot of tension. And even before that time, I had been doing some deep healing work on myself. And I knew what it was from, from early childhood, certain traumas that I was storing there. Well. Of course, that started firing like crazy while I was meditating and hurting, hurting and hurting strongly at times. And what would happen is, you know, in, you know, in between every meditation session, you take a break. So I would get up, take a break, pain would go away. I'd sit back down, start the process again, boom, the pain comes back. So, and it wasn't because you were seated, it was because you were following your sensation exactly yes. yeah it was the meditation itself that was that was exactly. spinning this up and okay. so this wow. is very typical you know when one starts this process you start to feel all the aches and pains like crazy they come up and oftentimes if they're chronic aches and pains they don't go away and so this was happening for that one chronic spot for me it would come up it would hurt like crazy i would sit there and this lasted for days okay now <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty trusting and confident with the process. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to work with this. This is good. Which is remarkable as a doctor of chiropractic that you weren't thinking, oh God, I'm doing damage. I'm doing damage, right? right. I mean, those thoughts must have been flying through your head some of the time. Well, I mean, I, th I, I think those are common thoughts with most people. But for me, of course, I've been doing some healing work for some time. So, so I you, knew so you that were ready for this. Okay. Yeah, I was ready. <laughs> it was going to come. <clears throat> but that is a very common thought, you know, am I really hurting myself? And so, you know, the proof against that is it would go away when I'd stand or during lunch breaks or at bedtime, my back felt fine. But as soon as, I, <laughs> as soon as I sat down within a matter of minutes, the pain would erupt. And now by the fourth or fifth day, the pain was reaching extraordinary levels and they would change qualities from fiery hot to stabbing knife pain to icy cold to all, all kinds of you know running the whole gamut and i'm just observing it you know and what happens is you get into this zone you know everyone's doing it you're doing it you've been doing it all day for days now you get into the zone where you're like i can handle anything bring it on what you got <laughs> well, so my body was giving me quite a lot. And I was sitting there. Everything. So it got to around the sixth or seventh day. There were times where tears were coming down my eyes now. 
And look, by, you know, by that point, there would be sessions where the pain wouldn't be there. I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, midday, there it is, back again. And by this point, the pain's sometimes spreading. It's getting bigger. Sometimes it's localizing. You know, it, it kept changing. And that's one thing you learn is the change is a good sign. Because, of course, that goes along with impermanence, the first characteristic. So if, some, if something is changing, that tells you things are working the way they're supposed to. And so your job is to notice the change, to acknowledge it, accept it, and be with it. So, okay, so the change is happening. Pain is killing me. Then I remember out of the blue, this is maybe the eighth day. I'm sitting there ready. Okay, here it comes. Here we go. And it never came. And, you know, how the mind, it's funny how the mind works. I started seeking it, right? I was like, hey, I missed the pain. Where is it? You know, so of course you don't want to do that. And I was, so I had to catch myself, you know, I was actually craving a pain, crazy enough, but it never came back that day or the day after or since then. But here's what happened. The session where it literally didn't come back, I remember during the break, I stood up, I was feeling like on cloud nine, I'm like, whoa, oh my gosh, what's going on? I bend down to stretch, touch my toes. And I remember very distinctly, you know, everyone knows how far they can bend, generally speaking, right? And so I'm expecting everything to tighten up at a certain point, you know, as I get near my toes. But then what happened was that didn't happen. I actually could bend almost a way of describing is like two or three inches more than I ever have before. And it caught me off guard. I was like, whoa, what just happened? I can't do this. My spine isn't that flexible if I haven't been stretching for hours and hours or doing yoga. And so it suddenly dawned on me, oh my gosh. Me sitting here, being with the pain, and just observing how it changed and left me, actually physically changed something in my spine, where it literally restructured the ligaments, the tendons, the structure, something shifted in such a way where the tension was released, where I literally noticed it in my stretch. Everybody I know who has done a 10-day retreat comes back and independently says the same thing. Wow, that was intense. One of the weirdest things was, for some reason, my hamstrings are so much longer. I can palm the floor and I never used to be able to touch them. It's like the funniest <laughs> right. thing. That's exactly how it was. <laughs> exactly. Now, when, I mean, just right there. I mean, that's an extraordinary example of like what what can happen. But there were two parts that you've you've shared before in talking about it that I found especially amazing. One was that there was a flash of connecting it to a childhood trauma. And that that was a piece of that release. And it's like you went back to the original, you know, memory that that gave rise to sensitivity in that part of your back. Right, exactly. And that's one of the profound things that happens with this type of work is when you're able to just be with something like that, right? However it's manifesting for me, it was 
the burning back pain. But when you can just be with it and observe the sensations and let them come and go, you start to notice what else is there underneath, whether it's thoughts, feelings, other sensations. And so what happens is a door starts to open up is one way to think of it. And you start to be able to see now what's behind the door. Because before you were just caught up with the pain and so you couldn't look past the pain. Now you're able to look past the pain and look deep underneath the pain. And yeah, I suddenly connected it to a childhood trauma that I had. I was like, oh, wow, this is why I've had this for so long, right? And look, this type of work and realization can happen with good therapy. It can happen with you know, other types of healing modalities. So the point is though, what occurred to me is I accessed a universal principle of healing which is when you can start really accepting what's happening, such as the pain, when you really allow and accept the pain and stop fighting it, stop resisting it, it suddenly allows things to change in ways that promote healing. And that's what happened for me. Wow. Well, if that's not paradoxical change, I don't know what is, right? I, I love that Vipassana, those who practice it don't even call it meditating. They just call it sitting because they want to make it really clear to themselves that they're not doing anything. There is no doing. They just sit, right? Right. And if the, that's the ultimate paradox, that, that the less you do, uh, the more profound the change at some level, right? That, that just being with your sensations and not reacting to them, not doing anything, can create change as profound as enlightenment itself. Exactly. That was the reason I brought up the idea of the block of ice melting with a heat lamp, because that's exactly what happens, what you describe. Right. Wow. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been a joy to hear about this and educational for me, even as a 30-year meditator, and I hope it's been enlightening for lots of folks out there listening. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. again it's just sitting he says if ever there was something that i was made to do by that definition it is vipassana it's been a week or so since we recorded that conversation insert magical time whoosh here and i've been doing my best to integrate some of these practices into my own experience of stillness it's hard it's really hard There's just so much noise to silence first. But in those moments, brief at first, in which I am able to to let an itch pass or tune out a voice down the hall, it's pretty magical. I can't wait to unpack this with Dodge in our afterthoughts. Wait, what's that? What's afterthoughts, you say? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. Afterthoughts is a podcast that Dodge and I record in between interviews in which we talk about all of our guests behind their backs. We discuss what we learned and how we've implemented it, and sometimes we even engage in a practice together on the show. The thing is, Afterthoughts is available to members of our community exclusively. 
head over to truestory.fm slash the change paradox and you can join for a few bucks a month. See, we love podcasts, but the hour and a half you just listened to with Suman took many, many more hours of our motley team here to organize, record, edit, and deliver to you. Your membership makes you a key part of the engine that is listener-supported podcasting. It's $5 a month to support the time we put into creating and producing this show. And just for members, you get a personal, unique-to-you podcast that includes all the interviews plus the Afterthoughts podcast, too. You can unsubscribe from the podcast in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get it now, because you'll have your own personal podcast that includes everything you could possibly need from us. And if you have any trouble with the technology, reach out. I will help you personally. Set your podcast app, subscribe to the show, and get the ball rolling. Thanks to all of you for joining us on this journey. And now, here's Suman leading us through a 10-minute Vipassana meditation. Now, you should know, at times, we will drop the music to silence. Please know, nothing is broken. We're just giving you the full 10 minutes to explore your own experience of nothing. Suman will be back to end the experience. Enjoy this. We'll be doing an experiential dive into ourselves, incorporating mindfulness and meditation, which includes our breath, our feelings, our sensations, our thoughts. So to begin, if you haven't already, go ahead and close your eyes and make sure you're in a comfortable position, either seated or or standing or laying down. What I'd like you to do is just become aware of whatever you notice around you right now, if there are any sounds going on, whatever's happening inside of you, just take note and notice how the breath is, notice how the thoughts are coming and going, notice any feelings, just taking note Taking a moment just to relax and connect to yourself. Now, as you do this, as you continue to dive within yourself, I want you to bring your attention to your breath specifically. And I want you to notice how the breath is moving inside of you and where your attention goes with the breath. Do you notice it at your nose? Do you notice it in your chest? Or do you notice it in your belly? Choose one place where your attention wants to stay with the breath. And once you've done that, I want you to place your full attention in that area, whether it's around your nose, in your chest, or in your belly, as if you're dropping an anchor 
deep into that area and letting your awareness drop with the anchor, fully focused on that area of the breath. And what I'd like you to do is simply notice the breath as it's happening. If you can, let go of any control of the breath. Let your body breathe naturally, easily, however it wants to breathe right now. Notice how the breath feels. Notice if it's deep, if it's shallow, if it's short, is it a long breath? Simply notice it as your body breathes easily and naturally. Simply accepting your breath as it's happening. Now let's stay here for just a minute with the breath, allowing it to come and go. Your mind wanders away. If it gets distracted and you lose touch with the breath, simply bring your attention back to the breath, reconnect. Now, what I'd like you to do is keeping your anchor where it is. I want you to slowly expand your awareness to include anything else that you can include, whether it's your thoughts, do you notice your chest? Can you feel your arms? Can you feel your legs? Are there any sounds happening around you? Is your breath making a sound? How do you feel right now? And I want you to simply practice for just a moment, noticing all of that all at once. And if you can still stay tuned into your breath. Simply accepting and acknowledging everything that's happening inside of you right now. Now, what I'd like you to do is go to a certain area of your body that may be holding some tension, where you may be having an issue with, or where you feel attracted to. It doesn't matter where, just pick one area of the body. Could be the head, chest, the back, arms, legs, the pelvis. Pick one area that you would like to bring attention to. Now, what I'd like you to do is now drop your awareness to that area. And if you can, stay aware of your breath simultaneously. And do the best you can. If, if the mind wanders, if you find yourself moving back to the breath, to the body, it's okay. Practicing expanding our mindfulness right now. So as you connect to that part of your body and the breath, 
simply let yourself be aware of whatever you feel in that area of your body. Along with thoughts, sensations, feelings. We're going to stay here for just a few minutes.
Remember, the key is to simply notice and acknowledge whatever you feel, whatever thoughts are coming and going, whatever sensations are arising. Whenever the mind wanders away to something else, gently return it to that area of the body and your breath. Simply observing, accepting whatever is happening right now.
Now gently pull your attention back to the breath. And now slowly open your eyes, bring your attention back into the room. You have now had a mindful tour of the breath and your sensations. <laughs>